You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the autumn of 1680, an anonymous sloop sailed into Montego Bay on the northwest coast of Jamaica. Montego Bay was a longtime refuge for smugglers and pirates and all manner of rapscallions. They lay at anchor for a few days, not moving or making landfall or careening their ship, just waiting. Now what they were waiting for, we don't know. Who they were exactly, we don't know. They weren't some notorious band of pirates under an infamous captain, or we would know more about them. It was just a ship, crewed by unknown men that waited suspiciously in the bay at Montego. After a few days, another small ship approached. Now she was flying English colors and had an official-looking crew. She was a small Coast Guard vessel out of Port Royal, and she had come for that anonymous sloop, but she wasn't there to sink her or arrest the crew. She was carrying a messenger from Governor Sir Henry Morgan. Now, we can assume a few things here. First, the crew was likely tense, even terrified, by that arrival of some armed vessel. But we can assume at the same time that they were expecting her. The messenger on board had good news for the crew. The governor had received word of their arrival, and he had invited that ship to his manor in Spanish town. They were free to sail to Port Royal and unload their cargo at the dock there. So the sloop sailed for town. Now, this was exactly what they were hoping for. They had taken a gamble, and it paid off. The old governor, Carlyle, was gone. For the moment, Henry Morgan was in charge, and it appeared that Jamaica was once again a friendly refuge for their kind. Now the dockman took their payment with a wink, and the harbormaster took his cut, and was kind enough to accept the names they gave. It appeared that Port Royal was back. Henry Morgan's messenger was also there, waiting for them, and he offered to lead them to the estate. There was a carriage waiting for the officers and the messenger, and then there were carts for the rest of the men. In short order, everyone was situated, and all seventeen members of the crew were headed for Spanish Town. It wasn't a terribly long ride, but evening was upon them by the time they reached Morgan's estate. It was an impressive building. It was large, and it was old, and it had the look of a Spanish manor house with a few slaves milling about in the failing light. When they got inside, it was a bit more familiar to them. It was richly decorated and painted in white, but it still had the trappings of an old sea dog who'd made good for himself. 
It felt like a captain's quarters, or if not a captain's quarters, maybe an admiral's quarters. An admiral with a good wife who had a taste for the finer things. But the men were led into the great hall. There was a large table set with crystal and silver. There was a fire crackling away on the hearth, and the smells of roasting meat and vegetables wafted in from the kitchens. The crew waited there for a time, a little bit uncomfortable, surrounded by all this finery. Normally, if they found themselves in a place like this, they would be looting everything of value. They would be drinking all the wine and resting their feet on the table. But here they were guests, and honestly, none of them had ever been invited into a place like this before. Soon enough, though, Morgan arrived. He looked older than they expected. He was tall, and he was thin, and he had sunken eyes, but he was dressed richly, and he greeted them in the booming voice of a man used to command. He had a warm smile, and he welcomed them, not as a governor might welcome some lowly sailors, but as a captain would welcome men aboard his crew. So they were all seated, and the slaves brought around wine for each of them. Morgan sat at the head of the table, of course, with his brother-in-law to his right, but he seated the captain directly to his left. Then, after everyone was settled in, Morgan introduced his wife and his sister and his nieces. It had been months since any of the crew had seen a woman, and these were all beautiful women, but still, this was the governor's estate. More to the point, it was Henry Morgan's house. So they stood, and they removed their hats, and they averted their eyes and shuffled their feet. The women told them they had already dined, so they wouldn't be joining them, but they were quite a sight. After that, the slaves brought in some food. There was roast pork and fish, there was yams, plantains, there were delectable greens, all of it smelled unbelievable. Morgan told them not to worry about their table manners. This might be a fine hall with delicious food and fancy cookware, but they were all of a sort here, and all friendly. They could feel free to tuck in, which they did with aplomb. The crew assaulted the food. They savored every bite of it. They washed it all down with wine that was finer than anything they'd ever tasted. When everyone was satisfied, Morgan brought several bottles of rum out. It was his own house brand that was grown there, processed there, and distilled on his own plantation. He passed around those bottles and let the men drink at their leisure. Boxes of fine and expensive cigars were brought out, and every man lit up. Soon everyone was laughing and enjoying themselves. They all had full bellies and full pockets, and Morgan was regaling them with tales of his many adventures. He told them of taking Jamaica and Port Royal. He told them of sacking Grenada after months rowing down the coast in Indian canoes. He told them of Maracaibo and then, of course, about Panama. These were legends to this crew, and here they were, sharing tots of delicious spiced rum with the man who had actually done them. Morgan praised the English sailors who had sailed under him, and the captain led a cheer every time Morgan told of running some dastardly Spaniard through with his cutlass. Morgan poured another round. He told the men to help themselves to rum or wine or cigars, whatever they pleased. He had done well, and he hoped that he could spread it around. And maybe they could repay him just a little bit. Morgan had an interest in knowing just where the best hunting grounds were. Oh, he didn't go to sea any longer, he was too old for all of that, but he did know men who did, if you understand. He made a pretty penny off of the information that a man in the governor's seat might be able to acquire. He even hinted to the captain that he was always looking for new partners in this venture as well.
So the men began to talk over themselves, telling Morgan of their latest voyage, of the loot that they had plundered off of Campeche, of the Spanish that they had outwitted and the women that they met out there. Morgan was leading the cheers now. He was laughing and urging the men on. There was a fleet out of Cartagena right now, but Panama was ripe for the plucking, they said. As the night drew on, though, the men all began to tire. After their hours of hearty meat and fine wine and that strong spiced rum, they were all led to bed in Morgan's own house, secure in the knowledge that there was a friendly face in Port Royal once again, who might even become a strong ally for them. In just a few hours dawn came, but with it came unfriendly faces. The pirates were awoken by hard-eyed men carrying swords and muskets and shackles. The pirates were still groggy, their heads were pounding from the drinking that was frankly heavier than they had done in some weeks. They protested when the men picked them up and put them in change. They were guests of the governor, his new friends, not petty criminals. This was all a misunderstanding, but their pleas fell on deaf ears. They were put in the chains, their heads were hooded, and they were marched out of the manor, into town, to the magistrate's office. They were all lined up inside, and one by one they had their hoods removed. All around them sat men on a raised dais, looking down on them in disapproval. They all had stern faces, hard eyes, and powdered wigs. In their center, clear-eyed this time and stern, sat Governor Sir Henry Morgan. When the pirates began to speak, they were struck from behind. Morgan intoned that these men were guilty of the crime of high seas piracy against the Spanish. They had confessed to him personally, in his own home, of taking Spanish ships by force, of stealing Spanish goods which had been unloaded by Morgan's own agents at the dock. The council concurred with Morgan, and Henry Morgan passed the sentence. These men, all seventeen of them, were pirates of the lowest order, they were to be taken to the docks immediately and hung by the neck until dead. Within the hour, the sentence was carried out. This is episode 49, Return to Jamaica. Now, our first reaction to this story might be incredulity. It's almost too perfect a parable, and there does seem to be a lot of detail missing, but it is corroborated by the local government and Morgan. Now, it might be a piece of propaganda, but this is what we have to go on. Now, you might be wondering what kind of idiots those pirates were to tell the governor himself about their illegal acts of piracy, and yeah, it was foolish, but not entirely. Morgan did have a complicated relationship with pirates and piracy. I mean, first of all, he was Henry Morgan. He was maybe the greatest and most famous pirate since Francis Drake, but he was also a knight. He was an official of the Jamaican government. His job was to curb piracy in Port Royal and to legitimize the English presence in those waters. But on the other hand, he was known to overlook the pirates in Port Royal if they played their cards right and didn't cause too much fuss from the Spanish. But then, on the other hand, sometimes he hung pirates at the docks. Like I said, it was a complicated relationship. So, let's go back just a little ways and take a brief look at Morgan's political career up to now. Back in 1675, Morgan returned from England as Sir Henry Morgan, Lieutenant Governor of Jamaica. He arrived before the new governor, John Vaughan, and served as acting governor for the first time for about a week. While Vaughn was in power, mostly he ran the military side of things. He 
had powerful familial connections to the militia and a bunch of former privateers in the navy, so there really wasn't much that Vaughn could do to challenge his command role. So for about two years, he conspired with the pirates out of Jamaica and the French on Hispaniola to enrich himself, and basically played a key role in keeping piracy in the Caribbean alive. But he was loyal to his old friends, not to the lifestyle of pirates and piracy. And as those men, his old friends, died off or got arrested or disappeared into the mists of history, he became less sympathetic toward pirates. Plus, he was busy buying land and slaves and starting plantations, and those sugar plantations were starting to turn a profit. By about 1678, he was completely financially independent, and he wasn't beholden to the pirates to earn a living anymore. In March of that year, 1678, a ship arrived in Port Royal that brought news to Jamaica. Governor John Vaughan had been recalled to London. His commission as governor was suspended. Lieutenant Governor Morgan was left in charge. Now, it was here that Morgan really began to hunt pirates actively. See, that Third Anglo-Dutch War was winding down, and there were a large number of old privateers in the region that were looking to continue their trade. Morgan had strict orders given to him by the lords in charge of him to see that those privateers didn't make England look bad, or it would mean his head. However, he didn't have too long to focus on that problem. On the 1st of April, 1678, another ship arrived from London, carrying news. The Earl of Carlisle, Charles Howard, had been given the governorship of Jamaica. Now, this was expected and really pretty good news. Carlisle was an old ally of the Morgan family during the English Civil War, and during Morgan's time in London, he had proved a good friend. In fact, he had been the intended governor of Jamaica when Morgan returned, but that Anglo-Dutch war got in the way. However, that ship carried other news. Now that the war was over, relations between England and France were once again on shaky ground. The French were amassing fleets around the West Indies, and there was one amassing back in France that was, well, a threat to all English holdings in the Caribbean. There was talk in diplomatic circles of taking Jamaica from England and making her a French province. This was entirely plausible. You see, this fleet was large enough and powerful enough to pose a real threat, and Morgan had just spent two years arresting and exiling and executing the very privateers who had served in the war. Now he found himself without that fleet of pirates that had protected Jamaica in the past. So he had to do something fast. So he declared martial law. He announced an amnesty for all pirates willing to serve, but almost nobody came. He ordered, though, that one out of every ten slaves on the island were to serve in the militia, alongside the Jamaican regulars and the volunteers. Now, those slaves were ordered to rebuild and repair the forts guarding Port Royal. There were three of them all told. There was Fort Morgan and Fort Charles, which were the strongest, and made up what was called Morgan's Line. When all of the repairs were done, there were 26 heavy cannon and a large variety of smaller artillery, as well as trenches for snipers and sharpshooters to guard the beach. This was Port Royal's first line of defense. But on the other side of the peninsula that Port Royal was on, Fort James guarded the harbor of Port Royal. 
When they were all at full strength, though, Morgan still wasn't satisfied. So he ordered two new forts built, Fort Rupert and Fort Carlisle. They were situated to the west and the east of Port Royal to guard her from approach by land. So when all was said and done, the city was guarded by five forts with dozens of heavy cannon and smaller arms and several hundred men at their peak. And that, well, it might be enough. It was enough to defend Port Royal, but it might not be enough to defend the whole of Jamaica. Graham A. Thomas writes in his book, The Pirate King, quote, The threat of attack by the French was real. The French fleet was under the command of Count de Stray and consisted of eight ships of the line, eight frigates, three transports, and more than a dozen French privateers who had joined the fleet in France. The transports carried hundreds of guns with enough powder and shot for each gun. Destray's flagship was the 70-gun Terrible, and this fleet was on its way to attack Dutch and British colonies in the West Indies. End quote. This fleet under Count Destray was a real threat, and it did harm to English and Dutch colonies. However, that threat never reached Jamaica. The fleet was struck on her way further into the West Indies by a terrible storm, and was broken apart. The privateers dispersed and struck out on their own to go be pirates, and the French Navy rescued what they could of the ships and the crew. Back in Jamaica, the new governor arrived on board the frigate Jersey on the 17th of July. For the first few weeks on Jamaica, he was ill, but Morgan was able to transfer control of the island over to him and his ministers. Well, as much as he had left to hand over. You see, back in England, the lords at Whitehall and on the Privy Council had heard from former Governors Lynch and Vaughan about the state of Jamaican politics. They heard all about the corruption and the leniency towards pirates. So they had decided to govern from the top down, and they removed the authority of the Council of Jamaica. The council still existed, but they were toothless. They could no longer pass laws or sentence even the most moderate of criminals. All decisions had to be authorized by the Lords of Trade and Plantations, which at the very best could take weeks. Now Governor Carlyle had more power than the former governors in that he had more authority over the council, but less authority in that all his actions were dictated from the top down. This turned into a slow and inefficient and for the Jamaican locals, a deeply troubling shift in policy. However, it hardly bothered Morgan. You see, he had spent his months as governor bolstering the defense of Jamaica to what was really a pretty respectable level. And think about it, he would know better than anyone else how best to protect a city, either from the sea or by land-borne invasion, considering how many cities he personally had overseen the invasion of. But then Carlyle had the authority to commission a small naval squadron, a coast guard essentially, but an official Jamaican navy. They would no longer be reliant on the privateers. And then Morgan's plantations were turning out sugar and quality rum. They were making a healthy profit. So Morgan was comfortable enough to kick back and relax, to drink his nights away and to reminisce with his old privateer buddies. So... The next year was quiet for Henry Morgan. Now, there was all sorts of political wrangling on the council, but usually Morgan didn't deign to show his face at those council meetings. 
The most Morgan had to do was to advise Carlyle on how to deal with the council when they would, for example, refuse to acknowledge Carlyle's new authority. Now, this took up a good bit of the governor's time, but most of his letters back to England were... Well, they didn't paint that as a very big issue. Mostly, they talked about news from elsewhere. French pirates were causing trouble all across the West Indies, and this was causing problems for everyone. But there were Indian revolts rising up against Spanish or Dutch settlements, burning them to the ground. But in Jamaica, well, they were doing just fine. You see, most of those English pirates were busy cutting logwood in the Bay of Campeche. They had done a good job in 1678-1679 dealing with the English pirate problem. That was when William Dampier was there in the Bay of Campeche, as well as more than a few characters that we've come to know pretty well over these past few weeks. Morgan did, though, have trouble headed his way. He didn't know it yet, but back in the Netherlands, a little book was published entitled The Amerikinsch Zerovers by one Alexandra Oliver Exquemelin. In the Netherlands, it was a smash hit, and immediately it was translated into Spanish. Now, that translation into Spanish was pretty inaccurate. Dudley Pope writes in Harry Morgan's Way that it was, quote, an amazing story of rape and robbery, treachery and treason, pillage by land and sea, and because the translator knew what was required of him, in which every foreigner was a scoundrel, and nearly always an English one. End quote. Graham A. Thomas writes, Of course, every Spanish person in the book was above reproach. Devout, the women were beautiful and chaste, and the Spanish governors heroes, virtuous, brave, and courageous. End quote. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Now here on this show, while we talked about Morgan, we used the most accurate translation of the original Dutch version that's available to us. And I even frequently questioned the accuracy and honesty of that version. 
Exquamelon had a bone to pick with Morgan, and his work shows it, but imagine taking that already questionable work and translating it into a piece of propaganda, a piece of anti-Morgan, anti-English, pro-Spanish propaganda. But that was the version that would be translated into English eventually and reach the desk of Henry Morgan himself, but it doesn't happen quite yet. Before that whole drama could play out, well, there was still the issue of the French. You see, two French ships sailed into Jamaica's harbor. Those batteries on Morgan's line, they opened fire on those ships, and those ships returned fire, but the two French vessels turned around and fled. But that put Port Royal into a state of alarm. Morgan was forced to put down his glass of rum and actually do his job for a change. Then a week later, eight French ships arrived off the coast of Jamaica. Now, not in Port Royal, a little bit to the east of Port Royal. Two of those ships were actually those who had been fired upon. So Morgan took a fleet out to meet them, and Carlisle followed about a day after. The French commanders of that fleet reported that they were merely on their way to Cartagena. They were going there to demand the release of some of their prisoners from the Spanish. They had been blown off course by a storm and were in need of water and lumber, and the closest friendly place they could find any was Jamaica. They had decided that, since they had been blown off course, to change their destination to Havana and demand the return of their prisoners there. And so they sent those two ships that had gone to Port Royal to request aid. Now, here's the thing. The Spanish did hold a number of French prisoners. According to the French, they were holding them unlawfully. There was a record of their mission, though, to retrieve those prisoners from Cartagena. There had been, yes, a terrible storm that likely hit that fleet. Now, the English didn't know that when they opened fire on those two ships, but it all became clear when those French commanders told their story. So the French there, that small fleet of eight ships, were given aid. They were allowed to collect as much water and lumber as necessary, all in good faith. Everybody left happy. However, when Morgan and Lord Carlyle returned to Port Royal, they told the people that they had chased off the French fleet through daring do. They were brave, returning heroes who had saved Port Royal, but the threat was not yet past. No, they had to be vigilant. The city must rally together in this time of need, and those one out of every ten slaves, well, they have to return. They have to help bolster the defenses of Port Royal. Every man and woman must contribute to the fund needed to defend their home. Now right here, the council saw their opportunity, and they struck. They commended the brave returning heroes, they seconded their plan to defend the city, and they reinstated their council and all of their powers. After all, in this time of threat from abroad, they all needed to be strong. Those councilmen had to have the authority to do their duty, which had been so short-sightedly diminished by the crown. So the council used this entirely non-existent crisis to reform and regain their power. There was little, though, that Morgan or Carlyle, the governor, could do. If they tried to point out that there was no reason for the council to reinstate itself and give themselves back their power, well, that would unmask their own ruse. Now, they didn't do this without need. There were reports coming from England and France that, well, the French still had an interest in Jamaica, but there was a more pressing threat. The Spanish were, well, they were rising up and causing some real trouble in the region. 
They had small flotas out in force attacking French and English ships across the West Indies. Now, mostly they were attacking pirates. That was what they were there to do. But those attacks had begun to fall more and more on legitimate privateers and even merchant vessels and occasionally a coast guard ship. See, there was a little trouble with English pirates starting up. Those lumber camps in the Bay of Campeche were being harassed by the Spanish, so combined forces of English and Dutch logwood cutters were attacking Spanish vessels and even Campeche itself. Peter Harris had begun raiding alongside Richard Sawkins. Edward Davis and John Cook had started causing trouble, and John Coxon was calling for a meeting somewhere in the West Indies. But neither Morgan nor Carlyle could discover exactly where that was. So Morgan sent out ships to intercept those English pirates. They had to be stopped, and stopped from giving England a bad name. But he didn't have much luck apprehending them. See, Morgan hadn't been a buccaneer for a long time. He was out of the loop. He didn't know where those ships liked to sail and where they liked to meet anymore. But then they had trouble with those Spanish flotas. Those Spanish Coast Guard vessels had a habit of attacking any English ship they saw, even those that were sent out by Morgan. I mean, he might be the lieutenant governor of Jamaica now, he might be a pirate hunter now, but the men in charge of those Spanish ships remembered well a time when Morgan attacked their cities. I mean, if you were being threatened by a pack of wild dogs, would you trust another wild dog to come save you? So, things got tense. It got to a point where war seemed imminent. There were small naval engagements between the French and the Dutch and the English and the Spanish in all manner of combinations. It seemed like those peace treaties signed after the Anglo-Dutch War were about to be thrown out the window. And then John Coxon, along with a fleet of many, many other captains, sacked Portobello. But then, after Portobello was taken... Well, the English pirates disappeared. Nobody knew exactly what had happened to them. Most people assumed that they found some place to lay low. Of course, we know now that they had crossed the Isthmus. They were down in the Southern Ocean, causing all sorts of trouble. Meanwhile, though, that official French fleet, that delegation which had landed on Jamaica asking for aid... Well, they were busy terrorizing the Spanish. They were raiding Spanish shipping lines and terrorizing cities all along the main. Now, while John Coxon and his fleet were away in the Pacific raiding the coast of South America, the English pirate presence in the West Indies was almost non-existent. There were virtually no English pirates of consequence sailing those waters. That crew that Morgan duped into getting drunk and confessing their crimes, well, that was typical of the quality of English rovers back in those days. But the French pirates and their Dutch compatriots, they were something else. Many of them we've already met, in the future, as it were. Several of those pirates who would sail alongside John Cook and Edward Davis when they returned from the Pacific some three years from now, uh, well, those were among the French pirates, men like Jan Willems, Jean Rose, and John Tristain. Those were veteran privateers who turned to piracy. And there were many others sailing around that same time, but three captains stand out. Three captains who I have criminally underserved while our story took us to the Pacific. There was Lauren de Graff, Nicholas von Horn, 
and Michel de Grammont. Now, we'll look closely at their exploits next time, but for now, it's important to remember that they're... Well, they're raising Cain all across the West Indies. All four of the major powers, the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, and the English, well, they all had ships out searching for those three privateers who were killing men, taking ships, burning cities. Those four powers, though, they were all technically at peace, but while they were out searching for those three pirates, well, they kept shooting at each other. They would capture innocent sailors. The French would capture Spaniards. The Dutch would capture Englishmen. It became this dance of violence and mistakes that, well, it looked very much like a war. It wasn't. These were peacetime maneuvers. They were just policing the seas. But if you were living through it, well, it might be hard to tell the difference. What's impressive to me, though, is that while all this is going on, while men are being captured and killed, cities are being burned, those three pirates and those other lesser-known names, well, they were mostly able to just dance away unscathed. This was a problem. It was a major problem for the French and the Spanish, but it was also troubling to Henry Morgan and Governor Carlyle. You see, they were, for a change, actually trying to curb piracy. And it should have looked like they were doing well. Since nobody yet knew about John Coxon and Bartholomew Sharp and their actions, well, it looked like the English were laying low and not causing too much trouble. But those foreign pirates and those foreign navies were causing England so much trouble that it looked like they were losing a war that they weren't even technically fighting. And then there were problems with the council. They were trying once again to wrest their power away from Carlyle, away from the crown. So Carlyle had his hands full countering those actions. And normally, Morgan would be able to occasionally loom up and remind everybody that he had the militia and nobody better screw with him and they'd back down and continue their dance. But for the time being, Morgan had his own hands full. He was embroiled in a legal dispute, bridging the Atlantic Ocean. Now, it wasn't about the Buccaneers of America, not yet. This involved a man named Francis Mingham. See, a few months earlier, a harbor master in Port Royal had brought to Morgan's attention his belief that a captain, Francis Mingham, had failed to account for some of his cargo. He alleged that Mingham had attempted to smuggle several casks of rum and two casks of a very expensive cherry brandy ashore without paying those proper fees. Now, if this was true, it was just smuggling. Morgan heard the case and ruled in favor of the harbor master's allegations. Francis Mingham had his cargo seized and his ship impounded. Now that cargo, even that expensive French brandy, just disappeared. But his ship was sold off. Mingham was not arrested, but he had lost basically everything, and he was understandably upset. So he took passage back to England, where he met with members of the Privy Council, and he laid before them the charge that he had been wrongfully robbed by Morgan. This led to a libel suit against Morgan and that harbormaster. Now, normally this wouldn't be a huge problem. In most cases like this, gentlemen could come to an arrangement. They could write out their defense, their position, and some money would change hands, and all of this would go away. But not with Morgan. You see, first of all, he was stubborn and he was prideful. He was furious that Mingham had impugned his honor. He was 
absolutely unwilling to settle out of court and have his name dragged through the dirt. Governor Carlisle even begged him to settle out of court and pay some of those costs himself, but Morgan said no, he wanted this to be settled publicly. Unfortunately, for Morgan at least, this was a hard case to win. He was, in his past, a well-known pirate. I mean, it's not like he hadn't stolen ships before. It's not like he had taken men's rum and brandy before. What's to say that he hadn't just figured out how to do it from a barrister's bench rather than the deck of a ship? So there was a lot of back and forth. There were suits and countersuits and counter-countersuits. But in the end, Mingham found himself in a debtor's prison on Jamaica. But then the lords of trade were forced to get involved, and Mingham was released and paid that settlement that he was owed. Now, during this whole process, Thomas Modiford had passed away. He and Morgan had been old friends. Modiford had been governor while Morgan was at the height of his privateering. That must have been a tough time, but more than the emotional hit, Modiford was a close and powerful political ally. Not just of Morgan, but of Lord Carlyle. His death only made things on the island harder, so in 1680... Lord Carlyle chose to retire. He was going to leave Jamaica behind and return home. Now he readied a ship to return, and left Morgan in command until a replacement could be found. But would you imagine who he found on his way out of Jamaican waters? Off the coast of Jamaica, lurking in a bay, Lord Carlyle and his escort stumbled across none other than Captain John Coxon. Now, no one had heard a word of him for months, and here he was. Now, Coxon, we know, was licking his wounds and rebuilding his crew after he fled from the Pacific, but for Carlyle, this would be a beautiful send-off. The retiring governor had the opportunity to catch the most notorious English pirate currently sailing. Carlyle found Coxon, quote, off Point Negril on my passage home, we gave chase with the Hunter frigate in company for twenty-four hours, but he outsailed us and we could not come up with him. But we took two vessels belonging to him, forsaken by their crews, who were all aboard his vessel. End quote. So Coxon escaped. Carlyle sailed on for England. Modiford was dead, and that left Morgan virtually bereft of allies. However, that doesn't mean he was alone. He was able to stack the council with his family and friends. He was able to promote and appoint family and friends in the militia. According to Dudley Pope, quote, Morgan was now Justice of the Peace, Judge of the Admiralty Court, Vice Admiral, Colonel, Commandant of the Port Royal Regiment, and the Lieutenant Governor of Jamaica, as well as Acting Governor. End quote. He was now the most powerful man in Jamaica. Carlyle had also given him a handsome stipend when he left the island, so Morgan was able to buy another 1,200 acres of land and build yet another plantation. Not only was he the most powerful man on Jamaica, he was quickly becoming the richest. His life became one of ease. There was drinking, and there was smoking, and there was eating and reminiscing. But then, on January 29, 1681, a pirate ship arrived under Captain Jacob Evertsoon. That pirate ship would signal an end 
to the peace. It would signal that Morgan's life of ease was about to come crashing down. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped support the show, either by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, or by becoming a patron on Patreon, or leaving us a donation at the website. Without all of you, I couldn't do this show. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, I definitely suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Once again, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight